Well, in 1 Corinthians, we have seen that there are two ways to approach the Christian life, uh, the Pauline way and the Corinthian way. And Paul is trying to encourage the Corinthians in this letter that the Pauline way is the Jesus way. And the Corinthian way, while in some ways like Jesus, needs to be redirected. The Corinthian way would be the way he's described in uh, the Corinthian behavior in so much of this letter. That is to use God, the gospel, and the church as a means of cultivating greater self-importance. And the second way, the Pauline way, the Jesus way, the Christian way, is to desire God to use us and to use the gospel to cultivate greater other-orientedness. So there's the Corinthian self-importance, and there's the Christian other-importance. This is not a uniquely Corinthian problem. It's seen in the secular sports arena as well. And I'm going to use a sports illustration, and you all know what that means. In 2009, when both David Robinson and Michael Jordan were inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame, Robinson's speech and Jordan's speech were a study in contrast. If you haven't watched them before, it's worth your time to spend time watching their induction speeches. Watch David Robinson's and then watch Michael Jordan's. David Robinson's speech was marked by humility and gratitude, and Jordan's speech was marked by arrogance and self-centeredness. Robinson, a Christian, conveyed that his life was about much more than his amazing and accoladed basketball career. He conveyed that his life was about his family, his sons, way more than the game. Jordan, quote, needed this moment to snatch his throne back from the likes of Kobe Bryant, if only for one night, end quote. David Robinson's personal words to his three sons were among the most poignant, moving, inspiring words that you would ever hope a father would give his own children. Here was a man receiving the highest of honors in sports, and he turned it into a father-son moment that his boys will never forget. He spoke to each son, acknowledged each of their unique gifts, and his unique relationship with each of them, and how he was rooting for them in life. MJ also acknowledged his children. But the theme was the same. At one point, MJ said, MJ said to his kids, you guys got a heavy burden to bear. I wouldn't want to be you guys if I had to. End quote. The contrast couldn't have been more stark. David elevated others. Mike elevated Mike. David honored his family. Mike honored himself. David was brief. Mike went on forever. Overindulgent. David honored God. Mike honored basketball. David saw his family as his legacy. Mike saw his legacy in his highlights. It's not a unique problem, the contrast between self-importance and other-orientedness. And we have been dealing with this in various ways as we've covered these church challenges in 1 Corinthians. We're in church challenge number five of six on the topic of worship, and this is part three, the final sermon on this particular challenge. Last week we dealt with thoughtlessness at communion, and this week we deal with selfishness with gifts. Selfishness with spiritual gifts is a dominant theme in each of these chapters, 12 through 14. 
What is a spiritual gift? Well, it's a gift of grace that's given by God for the building up of the church, not for cultivating greater self-importance. This morning, I want to deal with 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 as a whole. We're just going to do a flyover of sorts, seeing the forest, and we'll come back to the trees in the coming weeks. After this morning, over the course of my next three sermons, I'm going to do a short mini-series called Charismatic Controversy, where I'll dive into some of the particular aspects that are dealt with here in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 regarding tongues and prophecy and things like that. But I'm not going to discuss any of those details this morning, the more juicy bits of 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, and we'll take up those deep details and answer those questions, I hope, in weeks to come. But what I want to do this morning is just get the forest, just see what Paul is seeking to do in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, which help us, helps us to understand the trees. So the forest of 12 to 14 is Paul identifying their selfishness regarding how they are using their spiritual gifts. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, this church was uniquely gifted. It was gifted with power and the presence of Christ in some ways that are not repeated in other letters that he wrote. He doesn't talk about tongues and prophecy and those sorts of things, those miraculous gifts of the Spirit, in ways that he does in other letters. The, the Corinthian situation was a unique situation in that regard. In fact, Paul said in chapter 1 that he was not aware of any spiritual gift that they lacked, that they were up to the eyeballs in giftedness, and yet the way they were exercising it was not in a Christ-centered, other-oriented way that was building up the church and unto edification, but rather was a selfish way that sought to promote their greater and better gifts as opposed to other believers who didn't have them. So with the theme of selfishness identified, here's where we're headed. We're going to talk about four safeguards against selfishness with gifts that Paul gives to the Corinthians. And he gives to us, because as, he, as we're going to see this morning, all of us as God's people are gifted. We have all been given grace gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. And those gifts came from God to be stewarded within the church for the building up of the church. So this is for us as well. This is as true for us as it was for the Corinthian church in the very first century. Four safeguards against selfishness with gifts for them and for us. First of all, our gifts didn't come from us. Our gifts didn't come from us. I want you to notice who the source of our gifts is. Look at chapter 12, verses 4 through 6 again. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Look down at verse 11. All these are empowered. That is, all these gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. Look at verse 18 of chapter 12. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. Verse 28. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. God has appointed in the church. So that God is the source of all of our gifts. In verses 4 through 6, Paul notes that although there are varieties of gifts and services and activities, they come from the same Spirit, the same Lord, and the same God. Paul uses different designations for the Creator as it reflects the Trinitarian thought of the Bible. Father, Son, Spirit. 
Typically, he uses the Spirit for the Holy Spirit, Lord for God the Son, and God for God the Father. And while the spiritual gifts are particularly associated with the Holy Spirit, these giftings are ascribed to all three persons of the Trinity, showing that the Spirit does not act alone in gifting us as God's people. Our our, Our gifts didn't come from us. Paul's already mentioned to the Corinthians that, the, that, that there is nothing we have that we did not receive. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, including our gifts. Our gifts, therefore, are not to be subscribed to our own spirituality, but to the sovereignty of the Spirit. In our sin, we become curved in on ourselves and can begin congratulating ourselves for the gifts we have or the effects that we have on others in our ministry. Or conversely, we can lament that we don't have a gift we believe we should have or desire to have and are envious of other Christians who do have it. Or we may be discouraged over who and what we are or who or what God has made us to be. But Paul reminds us that our gifts are the result of God's will. Dear ones, our gifts don't reflect what we have accomplished. They signify what God has given us for his own purposes for the sake of the church. It is not about us. Let's give praise and give God thanks for the gifts he has given us and to others. And let's entrust our lives to him, knowing that he will fulfill the purpose that he, is, that he has given to us and intended for us. So, we don't have to fret and worry that our lives will be spent in vain because we don't have certain gifts. Rather, we should endeavor to please the Lord with the gifts that we have. He's given the gifts and the ministry he intended for us to have, and we should be grateful and content in the way that he has sovereignly and graciously given us those gifts. Now, at the same time, as we will see in coming weeks, we are commanded in these verses to desire spiritual gifts, to pursue them, to pray for them, and to seek them. Paul says as much in chapter 12, verse 31, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And he says in chapter 14, verse 1, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So there is this appeal from Paul that, yes, our gifts are sovereignly given by the Lord and we should be content with what we have, but nevertheless, we should pursue them. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility are not enemies, they're friends. So the fact that God sovereignly bestows gifts does not mean that we shouldn't ask for them. Now notice one more passage where he roots this idea in the one source of God himself in chapter 12 verse 12 and 13 where we read for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body though many are one body so it is with Christ for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body Jews or Greeks slaves are free and all were made to drink of the one spirit so our unity is created through our being baptized at conversion by one spirit into the one body of Christ That is our unity. The Spirit, in fact, indwells every Christian, and this common indwelling is what makes us one body. Paul uses the human body as a metaphor for the church, indicating that while God seeks unity as in church, he does not call for uniformity in the church. The body is both one and many. Many different members, arms, legs, fingers, ears, and so forth, exist in the body, but there remains an essential unity of the body. So it is with the church as the body of Christ. The church has many different members with differences in socioeconomic status and gender and national heritage and so forth. But we are all united in Christ. 
and we are one body. And because we are all united in Christ as one body, we are all gifted by Christ to serve that one body. So that's the point of the first points in chapter 12, that our gifts didn't come from us. Second point, our gifts don't belong to us. Our gifts don't belong to us. So the second safeguard against selfishness with our giftedness is in recognizing the interdependence of the church. That is that we are all, as church members, both needy and needed. As members of the body, regardless of our gifts, the body needs you. The body needs you and your gifts, even if you don't know what they are. The body needs you. This is Paul's point, beginning at chapter four, or chapter, or verse 14 of chapter 12. Would you read those verses with me? Chapter 12, verse 14 to 20. This is his, he's trying to persuade us that we are needed. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, ah, because I'm not the hand, I don't belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, ah, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? I love his analogy here. It's so earthy, isn't it? We can all get that. We all understand this. Verse 18, but as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one as he chose. If we were all single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So each individual member of the church and each individual member of Heritage Baptist Church has a particular purpose and is a part of Christ's body, even if we feel discontent with our place or our gifts aren't as visibly demonstrated, audibly recognized, manifestly valued, or cognizantly known. <laughs> Just as it is silly for a foot to complain that it's not a full part of the body because it's not a hand, individual Christians are unreasonable to question their necessity to the church because they lack a particular gift. Just as an ear would not cease to be part of the body if it complained that it's not an eye, Individual Christians do not cease being united to Jesus and vital for the health of the church by denigrating the spiritual gifts they have, by walking into a church and saying, ah, it seems like they got everything covered here. That is not the response, and that is not true if you're there. It can be easy for us to think that the church doesn't really need us because we do not possess a particular spiritual gift that we know of. But this passage requires us to reject that idea each of us is needed for the church to function as God designed it. And if we do not serve and use our gifts, the church will suffer. Alongside being needed in the body, we are also needy for the body. We need the body. The body needs us. This is Paul's point in verse 21 and following, that we are not only needed, but we are needy. Look at verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. See, this is the opposite response. I don't need the body. I don't need the church. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we would bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Verse 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together because we're a body. Verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Notice he puts the emphasis for those who might think that they don't need the church on the fact that 
they are the church before they're even an individual Christian. See, the, the, in terms of the way Paul's thinking here, he's thinking corporately of our identity. Do you think of your identity that way? I have a feeling we don't. We are, live in the individualized West where everything is tailored to us. Everything. Your news preferences, your entertainment preferences, your food preferences. Just look at the grocery store. Good night! 60 different brands of the same thing that are made of the same stuff with different labels on it. We are so tailored and so individualized. We can think that way as a church. It has infected the church of Jesus Christ in the West. And so in addition to understanding our role in the body, we must recognize the place of other members and their gifts in our lives as essential. Just as an eye in a properly functioning body cannot tell the hand that it's not needed, the believer with the gift of teaching, for example, can't tell the member with the gift of service, oh, I don't need you in my life. The members of the church whose gifts are not immediately evident in public are absolutely vital to the church. That's Paul's point here. The less your gifts are platformed, the less your gifts are visible, the more essential they are. How essential is your heart and brain to the functioning of your body? And how often do you see it in the mirror? That's the body, brothers and sisters. This body's engine is not run right here from this pulpit. The body's engine is run through the invisible acts of saints in this community day by day, moment by moment, that are unnoticed. Those are the essential things. If those things weren't there, I'm preaching to an empty room. Or I'm preaching to a bunch of people that don't really like each other, which is bad preaching, right? It's not a church. The members of the church are not immediately, the members whose gifts are not immediately evident in public are absolutely vital. For one application, we could think of, for instance, Betty May, who doesn't get a get out much and is relatively consigned to her establishment and doesn't get to come to church that often. Is she a valuable member of this body? Do you know how that woman prays? Her prayers and her persevering in prayer, and her concern for the nations, and her heart for world missions has borne tremendous fruit in this congregation. Few, if any, see her doing it, especially in contrast to the, to the teaching that happens publicly, but she's just as vital to the church as we are. Spiritual gifts are given not for our sake, but for the sake of others. They're tools that we must use to build up other believers in the faith, and we all have them. This means that every Christian is in ministry through the church. No one is merely a consumer of religious services. Everyone is a distributor. This is why church membership, brothers and sisters, is so important. Because it provides the field in which we serve and the field in which we are served. Without church membership, we are dismembered Christians. A grotesque thought, I know, intentionally so. Because that analogy helps us grasp the importance of the church as a connected body. The church is a body, which means that every Christian is a body part intended to be attached to the body. When they are, when they aren't, when a Christian is just attending a church or not even attending a church or in professing Christ, they are like a severed arm being kept on ice. And the church is made weaker because the church isn't benefiting from that limb. So other parts are having to compensate. 
When one eye is bad, the other eye has to work twice as hard. When one leg is weaker, the other has to take on more strain and will eventually grow weary and need replacement. Friend, if you're not a committed member of a church, I want to say it frankly, you are outside of God's will because God has gifted you to serve his body and you need to be served by his body whether you feel like it or not, especially when you don't feel like it. Don't let your felt sense of independence rob you or the church of giving to you and receiving from you. We are offering a new members class soon, and I encourage you to sign up for it. If not, please do find a church you can join so that you can serve with your gifts and be served by others with their gifts there. It doesn't have to be here, but it needs to be somewhere. Thirdly, our gifts won't remain with us. Our gifts won't remain with us. Look at chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Chapter 13 and verses 1 through 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I delivered up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. See, some Corinthians were sinfully desiring the flashy gifts of tongues and taking pride in the gifts they possessed while marginalizing fellow Christians for having what they thought were less impressive gifts or less important gifts. But our main concern should not be with the gifts God has given us, but how we're serving the church. Apparently, the Corinthians thought that the mere exercise of tongues identified a person as belonging to Jesus, but that was mistaken. In chapter 13, he puts the whole matter in proper perspective by stressing the chief importance of love, thereby making it the context in which all of our spiritual gifts should be exercised. Love is the more excellent way of using our gifts. All that we do is to be governed by the priority of love for others. If we have the best gifts, we are nothing if love does not permeate them and proceed from them. The most impressive speech without love nothing. The most impressive gifts without love, nothing. The most impressive sacrifices without love, nothing. Do we really believe that we have nothing if we do not have love? Often we feel we're doing, that we work hard in improving our skills in different areas, and we pay little attention to how well we're doing at loving. But if we really believe that we are nothing without love, we should be seeking out ways to love better and repenting to God and others of our failure to love well. Paul's saying, fruit of the Spirit, greater than gifts of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit is greater than gifts of the Spirit. Because people can exercise gifts of the Spirit. Think Matthew 7, I never knew you. People can exercise gifts of the Spirit without having the Spirit. Say, well, what in the world? How does that happen? People can get around the influence of the Spirit and begin to, in a Hebrews 6 kind of way, have access to some spiritual activity and do good things, but nevertheless not know the Lord. But the fruit of the Spirit can only come from union with Christ. It can't be produced any other way. And so without the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit start working backwards. 
That's Paul's point. Love is not optional because to exercise spiritual gifts apart from love is to fail in their use. Only when we grasp this essential point will we truly mature in Christ. Only when we embrace love as God defines it can we live the life that he intends us to live faithfully. And he provides that working definition of love in the famous marriage text, 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7, which is fine to be read at weddings, but I hope it changes your idea about how this passage functions in the Bible. It doesn't function, first and foremost, that is a description of marital love, though it should, for sure. It's a reflection of God's love. But it functions as an exhortation to the church for how to exercise its spiritual gifts in the assembly. So, do not these words that we read, that Dave read for us, describe our God? God is patient and kind. God does not envy. God does not boast. God is not proud. God does not dishonor others. God is not self-seeking in a sinful way. He's not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. God does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Now, brother or sister, in union with him, insert your name there. Would these verses describe you? Janet is patient. She bears with others, overlooks much, and waits with contentment. John is kind. He's not harsh, severe, or mean. Ruby does not envy. She does not covet and rejoices when others are blessed. William does not boast. He does not go on and on about his own accomplishments. Ryan is not proud. He does not draw on and on about his own accomplishments and draw attention to himself or demand attention from others. Shelley's not rude. She doesn't elbow her way into conversations in a disruptive, discourteous, and intention-seeking way. Brian is not self-seeking. He isn't narcissistic and self-obsessed or self-absorbed. Pamela is not easily angered. She's not petty or gruff or easily annoyed or perturbed or provoked to anger. Carrie keeps no record of wrongs. The biggest sins in Carrie's life are her own. And she's quick to forgive and overlook faults, foibles, and weaknesses in others. She treats you as though you'd never sinned against her. Can you insert your name there? Is Mark patient and kind? Is Mark easily angered? Is Mark arrogant or rude? Is, does Mark insist on his own way? Is Mark irritable or resentful? Does Mark rejoice in wrongdoing? Does Mark rejoice with the truth? Brothers and sisters, we should take those, these words on our own lips and apply them to our own lives in a searching way. And here's the point of why he brings up love to begin with. Because love's the only thing that will last. The gifts won't last. Love goes on forever. He says as much beginning in verse 8. Look at verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. Tongues, they will cease. Knowledge will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Skip down to verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Pursue love. That's why Paul emphasizes love. Because gifts are temporary, partial, and elementary. The gifts of the Spirit are vital for ministry in the church, in the current era, but one day they will cease to be. We should not prize them more highly than love because that fails to recognize the temporary character of gifts in light of eternity. The gifts are for the present era of the church, not for the church in glory. The point in verse 11 is not that spiritual gifts are for the childish immature. Paul says, when I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put childish things behind me. He's not saying that gifts are childish or immature. He's comparing two periods of time. He's saying there's childhood, there's adulthood. There's the church era, 
there's the glory time. We are in infancy now. We are growing up into Christ, but one day we will be perfected in love. No need for gifts then. Once Christ comes to consummate his kingdom, the gifts will no longer be needed. The gifts of the Holy Spirit then are for the present when our knowledge of the Lord is more limited and when we do not have access to him face to face. That will all change in the twinkling of an eye at the coming of his kingdom when we will be in God's presence forever and will no longer need spiritual empowerment for ministry in a fallen world. Love is the greatest Christian virtue. When everything else is gone, only love remains. The eternal love of God within his Trinitarian nature with his ransomed, redeemed, resurrected, and reigning people caught up into his very loving heart in eternal fellowship. Fourthly and finally, our gifts aren't about us. Our gifts aren't about us. Look at verse 7 of chapter 12. Notice why the gifts are given again. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For the common good. Gifts are dispensed for the common good of the church. Can I say this respectfully without giving away or uh, seeking to bring too much uh, political mindset into, the, into our thinking? But, but gifts are, are a communistic enterprise. What do I mean by that? They belong to God. They are dispensed on loan to the church for the purpose of blessing all people. Okay? Now, I don't mean that communism is a good government system. I mean that our gifts are actually not our personal property. They, don't, they aren't about us. They aren't for us. They are communal property. They belong to the church and to God who gave them. So our gifts belong to the church, not to us, for the purpose of the church's mission in the world. Our gifts don't belong to us as a platform for self-expression. Our gifts belong to others as an outlet of service to them. So the purpose of our gifts is to build up and edify the church. Paul says this again and again and again in chapter 14. Let's just survey some of these verses that we didn't read. Look at chapter 14, verse 3. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to the people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Verse 4. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now why is Paul arguing for the greater presence of prophecy and why we should desire prophecy above tongues? Again, not explaining those right now, but just saying. What he's saying is prophecy, unless tongues are interpreted, build up the entire church so the whole church benefits. That's the whole point of the gifts being exercised, is the whole church benefits, not one individual Christian building up himself. Now you can see why some aspects of the church and the way they interpret tongues in terms of the, the gift of tongues as being a strange phenomenon altogether because it's almost an entirely personal exercise between you and God and has nothing to do with the church of God. But Paul's primary concern here is for spiritual gifts that they edify the whole body of Christ. Look again at verse 12 of chapter 14. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Look at verse 17. For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person's not being built up. See what Paul keeps coming back to again and again? Look at verse 31 and 32. He says it again. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged, and the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion but of peace. He wants his church to be built up when the church meets together. 
So his primary concern is with the edification, the building up of the entire body. The thought of someone using their spiritual gifts to edify themselves is foreign to Paul's thinking. Chapter 14, verse 4, is not commending them for the practice of building themselves up with tongues. He's rebuking them for it. Paul is convicting them for that. This is why it's critical that the use of our gifts be exercised in an orderly way since it's through order that the maximum edification for the gifts take place. What if we all came in here and said, all right, everybody start exercising your spiritual gifts? You'd be like, what in the world is going on here? And that's exactly what Paul was seeing in the church in Corinth. Unbelievers were coming in. What in the world is this kind of crazy atmosphere going on? And nobody was getting saved and nobody was hearing the gospel and everybody was thinking Christians are drunk. So Paul commands that they be done in an orderly way in order for the maximum edification of the church to take place. He's concerned that the gospel may be given a bad name in Corinthian society because of the rampant disorder that is present in the church meetings. And this is why Paul places such a huge value on order. In chapter 14, verse 26, 33, 40, he says, do it in order, do it in order, do it in order, have order, have order. Brothers and sisters, I know some of us really love order. I like order. And I know some of us don't really like order. We're kind of, you know, hippie spirit, just kind of bucking against. And that's fine too. God made us that way. It's good. But love of order, I want you to see, is not a passing fad or a relic of Western Enlightenment modernism. It's God, and it's his idea. It's part of God's nature as an ordered being. And it's therefore a part of human nature as made in God's image. We see his orderly work in creation as he forms and then fills creation. And in contrast to the many pagan creation narratives, which indicate a world formed out of chaos, God's creation is one in which he brings form to chaos. Therefore, it should be no surprise to us that the same God who created this orderly way is pleased when we worship him in an orderly way. In order for the church to benefit from our gifts, we need to exercise them in an orderly way way edifying the church requires understanding and it's the point of gathering with the body in order to understand intelligible speech even unbelievers are better served by intelligible speech than by words that are unintelligible this is his point in chapter 14 everything that is done in the meetings of the church must be done for the purpose of strengthening the church dear ones is this your mindset when you gather with the church this morning Do you come to church this morning with the purpose of building up this body? Our presence alone, while encouraging, does not build up the body. The exercise of our gifts does that, which requires that we be prayerful, thoughtful, and intentional as we come together. And this is the work of all of us. The primary purpose of our spiritual gifts is not to edify ourselves or to build ourselves up in the eyes of others. Instead, God gives us these gifts to edify and encourage others. So how are you using your gifts to build up the body. You know, our salvation comes to us in an orderly way, doesn't it? The Father planned salvation from eternity past. The Son came into the world to achieve that salvation in his life and in his death and his burial and his resurrection. And the Spirit then comes and applies that work to us after the Son is raised from the dead. So if you're here this morning and you have yet to embrace Christ as Savior and Lord, God would have you be saved this morning. He has provided everything you need to be saved. He he has planned it in eternity past. He has executed it in history, and he is applying it now in this time by the Holy Spirit 
In fact, the Spirit is saying, even to you this morning, come unto Jesus if you are weary and heavy laden. He will give you rest. May you come to him this morning. Let me conclude with acknowledging, as we did at the beginning, that the quest for self-importance, as we saw in the illustration of David Robinson and Michael Jordan, is not a uniquely sports problem or secular problem. It's also a church problem. We see it in the Corinthians, and we saw it this year at a key moment in the Southern Baptist Convention that provided us another comparison for it. Now, I have in mind Rick Warren's brief address Tuesday from the floor of the convention. You should watch it online if you can find it. And then Juan Sanchez's sermon to the convention on Wednesday following. It was a contrast representing two different competing visions of ministry in the local church. On Tuesday, for roughly six minutes, Pastor Rick Warren drew the convention's attention to the explosive statistics that came out of Saddleback in the last 40 years. No doubt some of it a genuine work of God that we praise God for. But he ran off a long list of statistics that presumably chose and spoke to his success over the past 42 years. He stated that Saddleback, under his leadership, baptized 56,631 new believers, sent 26,869 members overseas, and he himself trained no less than 1.1 million pastors. A figure he told the messengers, that's more than all your seminaries put together. A quick calculation suggests that Pastor Rick over, uh, baptizes an average of 3.7 new believers every day, sends out roughly two members overseas every day, and trains around 72 pastors every day. Warren marshaled thesis numbers to demonstrate beyond any shadow of a doubt that his ministry had been self-evidently blessed of the Spirit. After all, how could anyone doubt it? Look at those numbers. No commentary was required on the long-term discipleship of these converts. Nothing needed to be said about the health of the churches he planted. No mention needed to be made of the depth or quality of the training he provided to pastors or even when these, where these pastors are today. All that seemed to matter is that these benchmarks of ministerial success were met, counted, and reported and needed to be known at the Southern Baptist Convention before he leaves. Brothers and sisters, I don't judge my brother's motives. But that is entirely inappropriate. To, to equate success with that, biblically. In contrast, you had Juan Sanchez, a pastor of High Point Baptist Church in Austin, Texas, and a personal friend who preached the annual convention sermon. He stated his aim was, quote, to call us back to the basics of establishing healthy churches that display God's glory, end quote. And this he did through a simple exposition of Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, in this sermon, Sanchez promoted a vision for church ministry that had it as its heart the centrality of the word of God and emphasis on the ordinary means of grace and the priority of being a faithful pastor. Sanchez called pastors to give themselves eagerly to the humble work of ministry and reject a fixation on numerical growth and outward indicators of ministerial success. He warned against building a church on any other foundation than Christ. He said the following, quote, we cannot build the church on any other foundation, quoting Paul in 1 Corinthians 3. Brother pastors, I appeal to you, if our primary end is merely church growth, we will be tempted to build on other foundations. 
we're tempted to build our churches on a foundation of music style or age-graded ministry or even politics or social justice or even our own personalities. Growth that comes by something other than the word of God about Jesus is not lasting, nor is it God-glorifying. You don't need to be known outside your town. You don't need to write a book. You don't need to be on a conference platform. If you're faithfully preaching the word, the Father knows who you are, and the Father is pleased, so trust the Lord and preach the word. A contrast. A contrast in self-congratulatory statistics and humble, other-oriented faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, the church in Corinth had its problems, and we have our problems. Unless we think we just pick on Rick Warren and uh, hold up Juan Sanchez, let's remember that this is in us too. All of our hearts. We can all be prone to measuring ourselves by the wrong metrics. And the true metrics by which we measure ourselves is 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs and no record of rights. It always trusts, always hopes, always believes, always perseveres. May God make us, by his grace, those sorts of lovers. And let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the clarity that it gives us regarding our personal lives and our corporate life together as a church. Thank you for the ways it shapes us under your spirit to not just think more biblically, but live more biblically, to live more faithfully. And that's what we want to do. We don't want to throw stones this morning. We're not casting stones at anyone. For he who's without sin, let him cast the first stone. Lord, the same stuff resides in our hearts. Redeemed hearts, but still with the presence of sin. So Lord, for those among us who think we are hot stuff in the body, humble us. For those of us who think we have nothing to contribute to the body, humble us. Both are forms of pride. To think the body doesn't need us is a form of pride. To think we are not needed by the body is a form of pride. Lord, humble us under your word to recognize that we are both needy and needed, gifted to give to your church for the building up and the edification of the same. Grant it in the days and months and weeks ahead that we would be a spirit-filled community that ministers to each other according to our gifts and avenues of endless love that you have given us. May we do it all connected to the great lover of our souls, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.